let's turn to Matthew 21. Going to take a look at that story that we look at every year around this time. As I've shared many, many times, this event that we're looking at today on what is known as Palm Sunday has been referred to as the triumphal entry where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. But as uh, J. Vernon McGee, the late great J. Vernon McGee, but he's not really late, he's really on time and he's with God now. As he said, it's always stuck with me over many years, he said it's not really the triumphal entry, it's really the tragic entry, not for Jesus, but for the people, because as we'll see today in the message, they didn't really know what was going on, they didn't have a clue, they totally missed it. They were rejoicing, they were celebrating, but they didn't really understand who Jesus truly was or what he had come to do. So it was really tragic because we, we know that the week ends in what appears to be tragedy with Christ crucified, but then on the third day he rises from the dead. So let's read verse 1 all the way through 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem, they being of course the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very exciting day because it is the launching point for the Passion Week leading up to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus on the cross. And what appears to be a triumphal entry, in fact, is not. But it is significant because it is, Father, as you know well, the one and only time when Jesus openly, publicly, officially presented himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. We ask your blessing upon this time of study in your word. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to stir afresh and anew within our hearts the joy of the passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, you notice in Matthew's account, he doesn't specifically mention palm branches. We will cross-reference that with scriptures that do. And of course, this day has become known throughout Christendom as Palm Sunday. And the palm branch is a symbol of victory, triumph, Whenever a conquering king would return from war, the people would line the streets and wave the palm branches. It's a symbol of victory, triumph, peace, because when a war has been won, 
when the war is over, then that results in peace. It also is a symbol of eternal life, originating in the Near East and the Mediterranean world. The palm, interestingly, also known as the phoenix. Remember the, the mythological bird that would be consumed in flames and then rise from its own ashes to new life? The phoenix, a symbol of eternal life, new life. The palm, also known as the phoenix, was sacred in Mesopotamian religions and in ancient Egypt represented immortality. In Judaism, the lulav, a closed frond of the date palm, is part of the festival of Sukkot. A palm branch was awarded to victorious athletes in ancient Greece, and a palm frond on the tree itself was one of the most common attributes of victory personified in ancient Rome. And since a victory signals an end to a conflict or competition, the palm developed into a symbol of peace. So that's kind of the background of the, of the palm branches. Verse 1, they drew near Jerusalem. They had come down from Galilee with this destination in mind, Jerusalem. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem. Now geographically on the map, of course, Galilee is about 90 miles north. But the reason it says going up is because Jerusalem's at a higher altitude. So they drew near Jerusalem, came to Bethphage. Oh, I'm back to Matthew 20 here. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, he took the disciples aside on the road, said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So he tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen. Come on, guys, let's go up to Jerusalem so they can kill me. So, again, like most human beings, the disciples exercised their selective hearing and chose to kind of ignore that. Remember how shocked they are when, when it all goes down. But he warned them, so he set out for Jerusalem with the twelve, knowing that his destiny was to die there for the sins of the world. Most people, if they knew that's what they were facing, would head the other way, right? But our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, walked right into the trap. Because no man takes my life from me, he said, I lay it down willingly. And they came to Bethphage, which means house of the unripe fig. That sounds like potential indigestion to me. House of the unripe fig. It was a village on the Mount of Olives, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho being about 14.5 miles from there. Mark 11.1, 1, Luke 19.29. And a very close, very close to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethphage was just a, like a sister village to Bethany. And it was uh, significantly the limit of a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, which is about 2,000 cubits or just under a half a mile. Remember, they weren't allowed to travel more than half a mile on the Sabbath. And that's about how far Bethany, Bethphage were from Jerusalem. There at the Mount of Olives, the eastern slope. So they get to that point. Jesus is planning and preparing for his entrance into the city. And he sends two of the disciples to get the donkey. He does, none of the Gospels tell us who these two were. 
could very well have been Peter and John. We don't know. At any rate, saying to them, go into the village opposite you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And again, we kind of see the deity of Christ shining through here. He knew and knows all things. So even though he set aside his godhood, came to earth in the form of a man to die on the cross for us, we still see that inherent deity that is always there with him. He knew exactly what to tell them to do, where to find the animal, and so forth. So if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he'll send them. So notice something here. It would appear Jesus was referring to himself as the Lord. And again, Jesus never denied his deity, never denied that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And we see him acknowledging that here. The Lord has need of them. Verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Remember Matthew's gospel. We, it's been a while since we studied Matthew, but one of the major emphasis in Matthew's gospel is to show how Jesus, his life, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all these things were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And so we see that word again here, that uh, it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Matthew 1, 22 and 23 so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This is from Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so Matthew goes to great lengths throughout his gospel to point out all the Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled during his time here on earth. It's over 300. The mathematical possibility of any one man being born into this world and fulfilling more than 300 biblical prophecies in 33 years, it's astronomical. It's absolute. One of many proofs that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Verse 5, tell the daughter of Zion, of course that's speaking of the people of Israel, behold your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here Matthew quotes again from the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king is coming to you, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, again, as I've mentioned many times before, in times of war, and it makes all the sense in the world, kings rode horses. Horses are big, strong animals suited for combat, if you will, cavalry. In ancient times, they would have their infantry, their foot soldiers, and then they would have a select group of men who were part of a cavalry, if you will, a, a horse brigade. But... In times of peace, they rode on a donkey, and that was, that, that was donkeys are slower, more plodding. You definitely wouldn't be wanting to ride a donkey into battle. But it was symbolic, a king riding on a donkey, that was symbolic that 
We're in a time of peace. And of course, Jesus came the first time as what? Who? The Prince of Peace. And yet the people didn't get the message. They were looking for more of a soldier savior, if you will. So Matthew's gospel, by the way, is the only one that mentions that there were actually two animals. A colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. You got you to gotta think. You got to wonder. Were the disciples asking themselves, what in the world does Jesus need with a donkey? But what I see from this, my takeaway, we notice they were quick to obey him. And we should follow their example. You know, there are times, probably many times in our lives, where the Lord is leading us in a certain direction, and we're asking ourselves, why? I don't understand this. You ever been there? But the important thing is that we are obedient. We are not hesitant. We're not reluctant. Even when Jesus first called his disciples, if you remember back to the very beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus is up there in Galilee and he's walking along the seashore and he encounters Peter, John, James, Andrew, the first disciples, they're all engaged in their fishing business, remember? Jesus sees them from the shore and he calls them and he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And these guys, strong, you know, young men, but strong, seasoned fishermen, even with um, their fathers involved in the business there, they got up and immediately left their nets and followed him. That's amazing. That is incredible dedication, commitment, and acknowledgement and recognition of who Jesus is and the importance of being obedient to him immediately. And particularly Peter, Peter, who we believe really was the inspiration behind the gospel of Mark, Peter's gospel, Mark's gospel, is shorter than the rest, and it has a real rapid pace to it, which is not surprising when we know Peter the way we do, right? And Peter's emphasis there on the immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And we see the same thing here, that Jesus tells them to do something that on the surface might seem a little strange or unusual. What's a donkey got to do with Passover? You know, we're getting ready to prepare for Passover, Mark 11:4 So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, "What are you doing loosing the colt?" And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. They didn't even bother to seek anyone out for permission. They just started untying the colt and when the people connected to that colt, said, what's going on here? Well, the Lord has need of him. Oh, okay, no problem. Now, keep in mind, we're in the, the region of Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, sister community of Bethphage. Jesus had spent a lot of time in this area, as you know. That was one of his stop-off points when he'd be traveling back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee. Had meals there at the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. So it's quite possible that the owner of these donkeys was himself an admirer or follower of Jesus and recognized him as the Lord. So there's no problem in here. They're free to take these animals and use them 
as necessary. So they brought the donkey, verse 7, and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And so these are just, you know, bare, raw donkeys. No saddle, no blanket. So they placed their clothes on him, outer garments, no doubt, in place of a saddle or a blanket so Jesus wouldn't have to sit against just the bare animal. And they set Jesus on them. Of course, he couldn't ride both simultaneously. So as per Zechariah 9.9, Mark 11, Luke 19, Jesus apparently rode the colt with the mother donkey most likely in front leading the way. And so we see in verse 8, a great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, keep in mind, this is five days before Passover. Where did this very great multitude come from? The normal population of Jerusalem at the time of Christ, best estimates, 80 to 100,000. Some people say less, 40 to 50,000, but somewhere in that range. Um, I'm not sure what the current population of Santa Fe is. I know it's been growing, but it would have been something similar, perhaps, to uh, a city about the size of Santa Fe or one of our smaller New Mexico cities. But at Passover, Jews from all over the known world, all over the Mediterranean region, the diaspora, the Jews that had been spread out all over the place, as a result of the various uh, invasions that they'd experienced over hundreds and thousands of years, as many as could possibly make it, they really were required to be there for Passover. And so the city would swell from 50 to 100,000 up to anywhere from 200,000. Some have estimated as high as 1 million people there. That would bring it up more like to the size of Albuquerque in terms of population. And so that's where the great multitude came from. They were, the city was filled with people that had come for Passover. It's unfortunately the best analogy I can think of would be a secular one where there would be a Super Bowl and all these people would come in, or a balloon fiesta back in its heyday. Remember when it was really big? It's kind of gradually dwindled over the years. But back in the day, man, and even still, when there's no pandemic. Those of us who have lived here a while kind of, I don't know, my wife loves the balloon fiesta. To be honest, I kind of dread it. Because <laughs> the streets are just full of vehicles and, you know, these uh, chase vehicles and so forth and all the restaurants are packed out. It's great for local business. And so I'm thankful for that. But I'm just kind of trying to give you the scenario here. Picture something like, yeah, the balloon fiesta where it's too bad I can't think of any modern spiritual gatherings that would equate but there are some secular ones that would be very similar so the great multitude spread their clothes on the road john 12 12 says the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem took branches of palm trees john 12 13 and went out to meet him so that's where we get the uh, additional information regarding the palm branches in particular. But we see also they're spreading their clothes on the road, just as the disciples had put their clothes on the donkey for Jesus to sit on. Now the people are spreading their clothes, their cloaks, their outer garments on the road. And of course, this was another way 
of honoring him, much like we remember hearing um, the stories, you know, of chivalry, where the knight in shining armor or the gentleman would throw their cloak over the mud puddle for the lady to walk over. You know, you don't see that kind of thing anymore. My daughter uh, had a flat tire. She's got a big, huge Suburban. Her son, Aiden, our grandson, our oldest, tried to take the wheel off. He couldn't get it done. It kept falling off the jack and so forth. Those big vehicles are hard to deal with. It's not like the old days when cars were reasonably sized and you could actually jack one up and change your own tire. So I went with my compressor. We pumped it up. She took it down to Pet Boys. I won't say which one. But uh, they told her they couldn't. They had a nail in it, okay? So we were hoping to get it patched, you know, put a plug in it, which I've done many times. They told her they couldn't do it because the, tar the tire had been driven on too long, too low, and it had damaged the sidewall, and they didn't want to take the liability risk of patching the tire. But at the same time, they didn't uh, offer to put her spare on for her either. So she just went home with a leaky tire. And then the next day, it was flat again, had to pump it up, took it to a different tire shop. She was waiting there. She had her one-and-a-half-year-old with her. He's sleeping in the car. They told her they would get to her. This was around 1 o'clock. Get to her at 1.30. So she calls us at 3 o'clock. They still haven't gotten to her. And I said to my wife, I can't believe that. Here's a young woman with a small child, and they're just making her sit there and wait and wait and wait. And Georgie says, they don't have any respect for women anymore. Women have shot themselves in the foot. This whole feminist movement and now the gender, no gender, no male, no female. Sorry, ladies. There was a time when men opened the door. But some of your modern feminists, if you do that, they get mad at you. Don't you open the door for me. I can open my own door. Okay, have it your way. You know, I would think in a civilized, rational society that, and again, that deferential treatment would be given to women, to children. You know, usually if we have some kind of a potluck or something, or even if it's a family gathering, I'll say, okay, ladies and kids and women and children first. You know, that's the way I was raised. And I pretty much think that's the way God likes it. That we would honor and prefer our ladies, our children. Because in spite of what the world is telling us, God says that they are the fairer, gentler gender, if you will. So anyway, they were honoring Jesus by throwing their clothes on the road. So guys, next time you see a lady trying to cross a puddle, take your shirt off and throw it over the puddle. <laughs> Except that might gross her out even more, so don't do... <laughs> if you have a jacket, take off the jacket, but if all, don't take your shirt off. She should not have to deal with that. Unless you're young and buff, you know, and my grandson's got a nice six-pack. I have a keg. <laughs> and it's not from, you know, consuming. 
alcoholic beverages. It's just a natural phenomenon. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> okay. And it's also a family attribute. All the men in my family, as they get older, have this same little keg. So here we are. They're throwing their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Another way of honoring him. And again, as John gives us that further insight that not only were they cutting down tree branches, specifically they were palm branches. And we already talked about all the significance wrapped up within this idea of the palm branch. The people, again, are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So again, this waving of the palm branches, it signifies fruitfulness and victory. And here's the deal. Again, the people thought that Jesus was coming as a conquering king. They were oppressed. They were under Roman rule. They were not a free people. Because hundreds of years prior, the people had turned their back on God, began to worship false gods, listen to false prophets, and so forth. God had allowed them to be overtaken, first by the Assyrians, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, and then ultimately by the Romans. And so their major concern and major focus was not on their own personal spiritual life. It was on their oppression by the Roman government. And they thought he was coming as a conquering king to drive out the Romans and to reestablish the glorious Israelite kingdom of David. Leviticus 23.40 You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. They're rejoicing before the Lord. They're celebrating. They're crying out, Hosanna. But they're totally mistaken as to Jesus' mission. That's why McGee calls it the tragic entry. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed, so they've got people, you know, in front of Jesus. They're dancing, singing, waving the palm branches and so forth. And there are people coming up behind him doing the same. They cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And what they're doing is they're actually reciting from a passage, a section of the Psalms called the Hallel. Hence, Hallelujah, Hallel. The Hallel consists of six Psalms 113 through 118, which are recited as a unit on joyous occasions. And they would do the same thing as they're traveling. Say there's a group of pilgrims coming down from Galilee region to Jerusalem. They would be singing that along the way, reciting it or singing it. And they're recited on specifically three occasions, uh, or more actually. These occasions include the following, the three pilgrim festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, the major Jewish holy days mentioned in the Torah, and also Hanukkah and Rosh Kodesh, the beginnings of the new month. So they say, Hosanna to the son of David. And again, Hosanna means, oh, save or save now. 
Psalm 118.25 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. But as I mentioned, what the people were looking for was a soldier's savior, but Jesus came to be a sinner's savior. The people were not focused on the need for cleansing from their own sins. They were focused on the need to be cleansed from the presence of the Roman soldiers in their country. Matthew one twenty one. She, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, what? Save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus came to do the first time. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. It means God is our salvation. Emmanuel is one of his nicknames, if you will. It means God with us. He has many names. But very specifically, Mary's told to name him Yeshua because he will save his people, not from the Romans. We know that there are people who are under oppression or even incarcerated who are more free than people who are out on the streets because freedom comes from within. Freedom comes from being set free from your sins, being forgiven, being washed in the blood of the Lamb, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Jews of Jesus' day were no different than any other people of any time. They thought they needed to be delivered from their circumstances, from problems that originated apart from themselves, in this case, Roman oppression. You know, people will have thoughts like this, motivations like this, and many times they'll act upon them. If I could just get out of Albuquerque, and I suspect recently with this pandemic, there's been a lot of that. If I could just get over to Texas or Arizona or Florida, right? Somewhere where they've lifted the mask mandate, then life would be great. But those are really superficial issues, aren't they? If I could just get out of this marriage. And sadly, nowadays, it's far too easy to do that, and far too many people do it. And not surprisingly, the reports out there are that divorces have increased during the pandemic. If you coop up two people in a house who are already having problems, it probably is a recipe for disaster. But the thing is, if you get out of the marriage, there's one person you can't get away from, that's you, right? If I could just find someone to marry, change my circumstances, then everything would be great. If I could get out of this lousy job, if I could find a better church with nicer people, life would be wonderful. The real problem for all people of all times has been and still is sin. That's why Jesus came to solve that problem. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the very focal point, the very heart of Jesus' mission at his first coming. He is coming again, you know that, right? The first time he came as the Lamb, next time he's coming as the Lion. Verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? 
So he descends from the Mount of Olives, coming from Bethphage, Bethany, traveling west across the Kidron Valley. That's the valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the old city of Jerusalem. Jesus now enters Jerusalem through the Golden Gate, located on the east side of the city. And the city was moved. Again, this was the one and only time that Jesus presented himself publicly. His normal MO was to be somewhat evasive about his identity. He never denied it, but he didn't go out of his way to blatantly proclaim himself the Messiah. But on this occasion, the only time, he presented himself publicly by riding into Jerusalem on that donkey. He presented himself to the people of Israel as their king, their Messiah. And the impact of the moment was felt throughout Jerusalem in a very dynamic, spiritual way. This is a very significant moment as they're all gathered there for Passover. And then this event takes place. It impacted the entire city. And they're questioning. The visitors, the people who had come from other places, not the locals they knew, and the, the recent resurrection of Lazarus, as we've talked about this before as well, prior to this event, Palm Sunday, Jesus' popularity had really been on the downturn. Many people had turned away, were no longer following him because as it got closer to the time for his sacrifice on the cross, his teachings became more and more intense. And it got to the point where he said to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? So there was a significant turning away. And then just a couple of weeks before, shortly before Palm Sunday, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it explodes all over again. And so that was part of the intensity here was all of those who were aware that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. But there are many people that had come from other places and they didn't know about any of these things. And so they're asking, who is this? People who had been caught up in the fervor of the moment, but they didn't really know who Jesus was and certainly not what he had come to do. And a point can be made here in spite of all the excitement, the enthusiasm, the fervor, this is why it's very dangerous, spiritually speaking, to rely upon emotional experiences and feelings. And by the way, Warren gets into that in this book too. So we will have these very soon. I encourage you all to get a copy. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Abide in my word. Not in emotions, feelings. He says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Not warm, fuzzy feelings. The truth. Warm, fuzzy feelings are just a little extra bonus. It's great when we have them. But you know what? It's great when we don't. Because it's all about Jesus. And what he's done for us. So the multitude said, this is Jesus... Who is this guy? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So notice, the people were correct, but their knowledge of Jesus was incomplete. They only acknowledged him as the prophet, not the Son of God, not the Messiah, 
although there were implications there certainly here in this Palm Sunday celebration that they saw him as the successor to King David. But when asked who he is, they merely call him the prophet from Nazareth. And that's how many people view him today. They're willing to go so far as to say, well, he was a good man, a good teacher, a prophet, a true spiritual leader, but they fall short of acknowledging him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And he's either all those things or he's none of them. As the Josh McDowell, one of the great 20th century apologists, how many of you heard of Josh McDowell? He's written a lot of books, great books. Evidence that demands a verdict, and then part two, great source for apologetics. And he's, I don't know if he originated it, but he's the guy I learned it from. There's only three options with Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. I'd say the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of him being the Lord. And as I mentioned it, even in the, before we started the message, and I wasn't even thinking about what I had here in my notes, Satan specializes in partial truth. So important. When Satan told Eve, God doesn't want you to eat from that fruit because he knows in the day that you eat thereof you shall be like him, knowing good and evil. Well, there was a partial truth in there. The problem was, Adam and Eve were not capable of handling that knowledge. God did not impart that knowledge to them. He, they were created in innocence before him, and he withheld that from them for their own good. And God told them, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that began the process of their physical death and spiritual death. Satan specializes in partial truth. Here's a partial truth. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus was, notice the word was, because they would not acknowledge that he rose from the dead. Jesus was a great philosopher. Jesus was, or is, one of the many manifestations of the Christ consciousness. Have you heard that terminology before? It implies that down through history there have been a series of uh, so-called spiritual leaders like Krishna, you know, Buddha, and so on, who were, in their time, the latest, greatest manifestation of the Christ consciousness. Another thing Warren gets into in the book, the false Christ, who becomes the Antichrist. you got to get the book. Satan specializes in partial truth. And I would say that there are many people who know just enough about Jesus to be inoculated. You know what I mean? They know just enough to not really know anything. When you receive an inoculation, and certainly we've all been focused on that lately, haven't we? Vaccination. And we talked about the fact that uh, the COVID-19 vaccination isn't really a vaccination because it doesn't contain any of the actual virus. It's an mRNA compound, which even the, the manufacturers of the vaccine refer to as software. Interesting. 
Now I've heard that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine actually does con it doesn't contain the mRNA component and it does contain the actual virus. But I've not been able to confirm that yet. If any of you have information, let me know after church. But when you receive an inoculation, historically, normally, typically what you're getting is you're receiving a small amount of that which you're trying to avoid catching, right? Whether it's polio, smallpox, flu, you are receiving a small, you're introducing a small portion of that disease, that virus, into your system to trigger your system's natural immune response and you build up an immunity to the actual sickness. Flu, measles, pneumonia, etc. So this emotional fervor of Palm Sunday was a big shot in the arm, if you will, for the residents of Jerusalem and the visiting pilgrims as well. But ultimately, their preconceived ideas and misplaced expectations resulted in an immunity to the truth. And that's sadly what is happening with many people today. They've been inoculated to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Makes it very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to reach them. And so that's why this is Sunday, right? April 30th, 30 AD, according to Sir Robert Anderson. April 30th, 30 AD, on Friday, of course, the people would stand there in the street when Pilate brings Jesus out. And under the prompting and prodding of the Jewish leaders, they would cry out, crucify him. The same people that on the previous Sunday are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He did not meet or fulfill their expectations. And they didn't even really know what they needed. God's word reveals to us who we are and what we need. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of a Savior. And his name is Jesus. The result of all this, Jesus didn't go back to Mary and Martha's house and have a barbecue. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. So Jesus wasn't fooled or taken in by this raucous, emotional fervor, people welcoming him, waving palm branches, shouting out the hallel. He knew what was going on, and he wept, saying... If you had known even you, especially in this your day, that one special day where he presents himself to them on a donkey, that should have been a, a clue at the very least. He wasn't coming as a conquering king to drive out the Romans. He was coming to bring peace. How do you bring peace in the midst of this Roman oppression? It's an inner peace that comes from being put into right relationship with God. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, wept over it, saying, If you'd known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you 
surround you and close you in on every side. This happened in 70 AD with the invasion of the Roman army under Titus. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They killed a lot of people. Other people fled. This is a prophecy that Jesus is pronouncing upon Jerusalem for rejecting him as their Messiah. If only you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Not driving out the Romans, inviting Christ into their heart, into their lives, asking him for forgiveness for their sins, being restored into right relationship with God. So they will surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground. That's exactly what happened. They actually tore the temple apart, threw the stones down. And you can see some of those there today at the, at the uh, south end of the western wall, the Wailing Wall. There's a tremendous excavation there, and they're uncovering more and more in these gigantic stones, thousands of pounds. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I have a theory about this. I think it's biblical. I hope and pray that it is. I think it is. I think there's biblical evidence of this. Certainly throughout our lives, God is pursuing us, particularly those whom in his foreknowledge he knows will come to him. The gospel goes out to all people. Christ died for all people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But I believe every human being has a time of visitation, a time when God is making every effort to reach you. You can watch the events that take place in people's lives and you can see, wow, it seems like God is really trying to get through to that person. Just like there was a time of visitation for the people of Jerusalem, the moment that Christ presented himself. And more than likely there were some in that crowd who really did come to understand him for who he really was and is. But most of them did not. I think it's absolutely imperative that you, when your time of visitation comes, you open your heart and mind to the truth. I shared the story of how I had someone come and visit me when I was 16. I think they were sent by someone from my church. I hadn't been going to church for several years, and my church family was concerned about me. And they sent this young guy to talk to me, and he told me, you know, the Lord wants you to come back to him. And I knew in my heart and my mind that he was right. And so I said, yeah, you're right, okay. And then we went out to my garage and we prayed together. There was a, a time of visitation there. I'm not saying it's only one time in your life, but I think there are those special moments when God is really going the extra mile to get to you, to reach you, because he loves you. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because they, they missed their visitation. You know, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. No matter what day it is, that's always the day of salvation. For somebody watching at home, somebody here this morning that may not have a relationship with God, tomorrow, we don't know about tomorrow. It may never get here, right? It may never get here for us. Personally, individually, it may never get here for the church may be raptured and caught up into heaven to meet the Lord. 
and someone here might miss out on that. So the Bible doesn't say tomorrow's the day of salvation or yesterday. Yesterday is gone. It says today is the day. So that's where this moment of visitation comes in. When the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart, you can, you can feel it inside. You can actually physically feel it. Something going on in there. You might, it might be heavy breathing. It might be an uneasiness in your chest or your stomach. But you can actually physically feel it. And definitely in your mind, something's going on. The Holy Spirit's talking to you. He's drawing you. That moment of visitation. Don't ever take it lightly and don't ever turn away from it. For some watching at home or here in, this morning in the sanctuary, this could be your day. Let's stand. Father God, there's a lot to take from this event. A true historical event, Lord. We know this is not a myth, a fairy tale, a legend. This really happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus really did get up on that donkey and he did ride down the hill from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley into the city of Jerusalem presenting himself for that one and only time as the Messiah of Israel. And Lord, he knew that the people didn't understand. They didn't comprehend. He tried to give them every opportunity. They weren't ready to acknowledge him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Their understanding was partial. It was incomplete. Father, here today we are blessed. We have hindsight. We are able to study your word. We're able to get the whole picture, the big picture. And we have your Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts, drawing us to yourself, revealing these things to us, giving us insight and understanding. So Lord, I want to pray right now for anyone here today or anyone watching at home that has not yet made that final step, that final decision to yield their life over to you, Lord, over to Jesus Christ, to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, I pray right now that you would enable them to make that final step, that final choice, to do what so many on that day 2,000 years ago failed to do, to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace to our hearts, to our minds, by washing us, cleansing us, renewing us, taking our sins upon himself as he did on the cross. So I am going to pray a very simple sinner's prayer just for anyone who would like to pray along either here today or on the TV, the internet, wherever they might be. It's such a simple thing to yield our lives over to God and to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. If you'd like to do that right now, just pray along with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for dying in my place so that I might have eternal life. Please forgive me for my sins. Please wash me and cleanse me with your precious blood. I invite you to come and live inside of me, to be my Lord and Savior. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength I need 
to live for you, to walk in obedience to you. Thank you for saving me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now I'd like to pray for anyone here this morning that might have a prayer request. So if you'd lift your hand, I'd like to lift you up to the Lord in prayer, whatever it might be, whether it's for health, provision, wisdom, guidance, healing of a broken relationship. God knows. We'd like to pray with you. I see some hands all over the room. Father, I lift all these folks up to you now. Lord, and we'll just start by saying we know that you love us. You love each one of these folks that's raised their hand. And by raising their hand, they have indicated that they have faith in you, that you can and will hear our prayers and even answer them. We give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory because you are faithful. You are trustworthy. And you're a good, merciful, gracious, loving Heavenly Father. So Lord, we lift each one up to you now. Lord, you know what's going on with each one of these folks. If it's a health issue, we pray for healing. Lord, in any way you choose to do it, whether it would be through medical means, supernaturally, or a combination of the two, we pray for healing, Lord, for various illnesses, afflictions, uh, diseases. Lord, you're greater than all that stuff. So we pray for healing, for health, for wholeness. Pray for provision for those who are having financial difficulties, Lord. We just ask that you would provide, again, according to the promises of your word, that you would provide for us, take care of us. Not always maybe giving us all the things we want, but certainly those things which we need. You have promised that you would feed us and clothe us and shelter us, and we trust you and we thank you and we praise you for that. For relationships, Lord, that have been broken or damaged, we pray for healing, for restoration that you would help those here today with that kind of a prayer request, help them to be instruments of your peace, to be peacemakers. Pray for reconciliation and healing of relationships, Lord. Father, for those struggling with anxiety, fear, doubt, anger, Lord, all these things are not good for us. They're not healthy. Where repentance is needed, help us to repent. Lord, and help us to give over those anxieties, those worries, those fears, those doubts, those concerns to you. Lord, your word says we're to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Help each one to do that. And Lord, anything that we may have overlooked, you know. You know each heart. You know each request. We lift them all up to you now, and we thank you in advance for the answers that are on their way. In Jesus' name, amen.